All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. This is Sugar Steve, and on this week's Questlove Supreme Classic, jazz musician, songwriter, and co-founder of A&M Records, Herb Alpert, talks about the art of the trumpet, writing hits with Sam Cooke, the secret to outselling the Beatles, and how he really feels about getting sampled by Biggie. Originally released October 4th, 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Welcome to a very special one-on-one edition of Questlove Supreme. Well, sort of. One-on-one. Well, you're here too. Sugar Steve's always here. So, <laughs> okay. You know. Um, you know, one of one of the one of the great things about one of my many jobs that I have is uh the interaction I get to have with um an endless parade of of musicians and artists that come to the Tonight Show. Um so kind of off the cuff and spur of the moment, uh I thought it would uh I'd be remiss if I behoove. did not you like behoove. No, that's why I said remiss instead of behoove. Okay, well, either, either way. <laughs> I'm changing good. my style, yeah, Steve. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, you know, if I didn't have uh, an in-depth conversation uh, with, I mean, to say Renaissance Man is almost cliche at this point. I guess if you, like, do three things well or four things well, you're a Renaissance Man. But um, Hey, I can chew gum, too. Yeah, okay. Well, now, now he's a Renaissance man, okay. ladies and gentlemen, the world's greatest gum chewer of all time. Uh, please welcome to a very Questlove Supreme uh, special, uh, Mr. Herb Alpert. Well, thank you very much. Hey, oh, what a round of applause! Thank you. Just <laughs> one golf clap. Uh, how how are you today? I'm feeling good. You good? Yeah. Good. Uh, I guess as as of this recording, you're in New York doing a, a residency at uh, right. Yeah, we play at the uh, Cafe Carlisle. We, this is our fifth time there. Okay. And, uh, I enjoy it. It's fun. You know, this is a small little group of people. Uh, 
I think the room holds about 90 people, and it's really up close and personal. In the 60s, I used to play for, when, you know, the height of the Tijuana Brass, we were playing for like 20,000 people at the big arenas. I was going to say, what do you prefer, like the intimate setting or like the... Actually, I, I prefer a room that has a good sound with an intimate setting. You know, that's, that's the best. In the old days, it was like uh, you never really got a feeling of the audience. They were just way out there someplace. And that was the days, you know, when people smoke. So you could see people light up cigarettes. And for the most part, you don't see that anymore. But um, I like the intimate setting. It's more fun. Oh, cool, cool. Um, so I have to say, after um, discovering your music uh, when I was a child, I had a father that had a very extensive record collection. Um, I'm sure that I'm not alone in which I thought you were naturally of Mexican descent. Oh, so did I for a while. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, I used to go to bullfights in Tijuana uh, in the springtime for about three years. I did before I just decided I don't like bullfighting anymore. But, mm -hmm. you know, that was uh, an experience for me. And I, I never heard mariachi music, but I heard uh, this brass band in the stands that uh, kind of knocked me out because they would like introduce all the, uh, the the events of a bullfight. You know, like uh, mm -hmm. before the bull would come out, they'd come up with a ba -da, ba -da 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 -da, bang, the bull shows up, you know, and then another fanfare for the matador and the picadors. And the... so it was kind of exciting, you know, and I tried to translate that feeling into a song, and I had a, a good melody from a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And that became The Lonely Bull, and that record uh, we released, that was the first record released uh, on A&M, 1962, and it took off like a rocket ship, so it was a good feeling. So uh, can I assume <laughs> that before 1962, uh, in American culture, uh, sort of the, the mariachi sound or even the sound of of Mexican music wasn't uh, fully developed yet as far as, I mean, how popular was it at the time? Like, was it introduced to you because you specifically went to these bullfights? Um, not, I'm not sure. You know, it kind of just uh, morphed into me. I was, uh, you know, I like Cal Jader and, and, and Predes Prado, uh, Machido, and, and, and those type of Latin groups. I, I remember seeing one time, Machito here in, in New York, and it was a real eye-opener for me because I, I got there early. The band was on the stand. Machito didn't arrive yet, and the band was very loosey-goosey. They were playing some stuff that was really kind of straggling along, you know, everyone kind of uh, not in the groove of things. Then Machito came out with a cowbell, and went bing, 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 bang, bang, and all of a sudden everybody... <laughs> Everybody came alive. Yeah, everybody came alive at the right time. It was beautiful. So, I mean, that I've had several experiences where I it really hit me that it's not what you do. It's the way how you do it. And that's uh, the way I've been, been operating. True. I, I can agree with you. Um, can you agree, Steve? I do agree with that. It's uh, the way how you do it. <laughs> well, it, who, it's, as far as your your your, your musical development... Your, your childhood, what was, how old were you when you first picked up a trumpet? Well, I had this great uh, experience in my grammar school. And there was a music appreciation class. I don't know if they call it a music appreciation class, but it was a, a, a class talking about music, and there was a, a table filled with various instruments. I happened to pick up the trumpet because I liked the feeling of it. I was very small, and uh, the trumpets seemed to fit my, 
my hand and I tried to make a sound out of it, which I couldn't do. I was just blowing hot air into it and that didn't work. But when I finally, you know, made sound out of the instrument and started uh, working on it, I realized that it was talking for me because I was very shy as a kid. I'm, I'm basically an introvert, but more so than... All, all musicians are, I think. Well, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, I guess one of those things. I've met a lot of great musicians in my days now. But, uh, yeah, I was... Uh, so, th anyways, the trumpet was talking for me. It was it was saying things that I couldn't get out of my mouth. So, it was a, it's been a, a great friend for me through the years, and I've learned a lot from it. Uh, we've, had, we've had our ups and downs, right. <laughs> like all musicians do. Uh, jumping forward, Dizzy Gillespie was a friend of mine, and Dizzy used to say, you know, the... Closer I get, the farther it looks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, how? First of all, what type of what what trumpet do you play? Like I know there's different types of saxophones, altos, and but yeah, it's, it's a regular B flat trumpet. You know, I've had uh, different models through the years, and all I played all the Tijuana brass records on a Chicago bench trumpet. But uh, it's not the trumpet. You know, I, uh, I ran into a huge problem playing the instrument around 1970, going through a divorce, and I don't know, my body wasn't feeling good, and I was not mentally in good shape. And I had a real problem. Uh, I was, it was a struggle to play the instrument. I was stuttering through the horn. I was like, I couldn't get the note out in time. Really? Right. So... Uh, I had took some time off, and then I started studying with a teacher here in, in New York, Carmine Caruso. And uh, he was known as the troubleshooter. You know, he could uh, teach brass instrument. He could teach any instrument, never played the trumpet, but he taught the trumpet. And he taught trumpet players from all over the country and all over the world. And he used to tell me, man, it's not the trumpet. The trumpet is just a piece of plumbing. <laughs> So you were essentially playing a piece of plumbing. Yeah, that was his description <laughs> of the instrument. It's a piece of plumbing, man. You're the instrument. doesn't matter what kind of mouthpiece you use or what kind of trumpet you're playing. It, the, you know, the sound is inside you. And that's, you know, the sound I've always tried to make. You know, I, I went through a period of thinking, well, man, do I, can I play like Clifford Brown? Heck no. You know, that guy was a, a genius beyond, you know. And... Uh, then Miles and Louis Armstrong and all those great players, I was thinking, well, I, I was trying to imitate them for a while. And then I realized, who wants to hear that? They've already done it. So I was looking for my own voice. Well, I think you found it because I'll probably say that next to Miles Davis, um, I could probably tell Dizzy Gillespie's tone in about if you give me about 20 seconds i know uh, and maybe a, a toro like there's certain freddie hubbard yeah there's certain trumpet players in which you could tell instantly but with you you have such a distinctive tone and voice with your playing that even yesterday um of course like we're, we we all get very nervous when our heroes mm -hmm. come to play with us and you know Rule number one is like we try not to freak out in front of you, so the quieter the quieter the roots are when rehearsing. Like <laughs> you best believe we're on our cell phone. Like oh my fucking you know. Yeah, that sort no, of thing. I enjoyed playing with you guys, but I had the supreme compliment from Miles. Miles said you hear three notes, 
and you know it's you know it's you so it's i mean that's well i want to know how how much practice did it take as far as your craft is concerned before you knew okay this is my lane and stay in it and i know that you know were you ever tempted like for me as a drummer um i guess i've made my mark playing flat-footed when i was young bernard purdy once told me he says, dude, I keep food on the table with the two and the four. <laughs> you want to keep food on the table or you want to like, do you look my, no you know, because drummers are, or musicians always want to flex and let other musicians know I got more technique than you and that sort of other sure. thing. But uh, I followed his advice and he's like, yo, just, if you just do the two and the four, that that will last forever like a good tuxedo. Well, yeah, that's true to a degree, but I mean, you have to be authentic. You know, you have to be real. I don't think you can fake fake that. Uh, you have to do something that you're passionate about, and if it's two and four you're passionate about, great, go ahead. <laughs> uh, but during the time period in which, like, you know, Miles is pushing the boundaries with, you know, in a silent way and bitches brew and all this stuff, are you thinking, like, damn, like, I got to catch up or, you know, or for you, it's just like. No, I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't really thinking about making hit records. I mean, that's jumping forward. But, you know, I was drafted in the Army mm -hmm. uh, out of, uh, I went to University of Southern California for about a year. And I really didn't take to college. I just didn't have that feel yet. But I was drafted in the Army. And they sent me to, oh, well, first off, I told them that the only thing I know how to do is play the trumpet, you know. Mm -hmm. I said, I, and I, I lied a bit. I, I played with Dizzy and I played with, uh, you know, <laughs> Count Basie and I it gave him the whole story. Anyway, I was a trumpet player and that was my MO. So they sent me to band school in, in Fort Knox, Kentucky. And there were uh, like about 10 trumpet players there. And these guys were all better than me. And, you know, and I was coming from a, a, a situation where I was the number one trumpet player at my school and all the, right all these gigs in, in, in Los Angeles. And I realized that um, these guys could play higher, faster, louder, read better, and you know, the jazz was for the most part. I mean, not all of them, but most of them, you know, were just uh, pretty darn good. And I thought, if I'm ever going to make it as a professional musician, I have to come up with my own style, my own voice. And that's what I started pursuing. Um, I heard this record by um, the guitar player, uh, How High the Moon, uh, Les Paul. Yeah. Okay. And so Les was layering his, his guitar on, this, uh, on these tracks. Uh, and I tried doing that at home. I had two tape machines. But believe it or not, I'm saying two tape machines. You know, when I started, are you sitting... I I had a Webcore wire recorder. Wow. <laughs> what? It was a, a wire recorder. A wire, a wire recorder. This is pre-tape. Yeah, it was pre-tape. And oh. it, it was like, you know, if you wanted to make an edit, you needed a soldering iron. You know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so I got the tape machines. I uh, got the Ampex uh, mono machine, and I had two of those. And I used to go from one machine to the other, layering the trumpet. And all of a sudden, ah. That's a nice sound. That was the Tijuana, the genesis of the Tijuana brass sound. And that you happened. Stacking your. Stacking the horns. And um, when I hit on it, it felt like right. And then, you know, came the Lonely Bull. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, this, this record, uh, you know, it was a big hit record. And I got this letter from a lady in Germany. I chuckled when I first read it, but she said, Dear Mr. Opera, thank you for sending me on this vicarious trip to Tijuana. You know, which made me think, wow, that music was so visual for her. Mm-hmm. It, it transported her. And I said, well, that's the music that I, I really like to make. make, make music that takes you someplace. You know, opposed to elevator music, which is, uh, it's music, it's not bad, it's not good, it's just there. You know, you don't go out the elevator whistling anything. But, um, but it wasn't invented at the time. What's that? It wasn't invented at the time. So, it, you know, I don't consider elevator music to be like a four-letter word. No, no, no. It's cool. I but mean, I think it's ubiquitous. Like, okay, like it's beyond your home stereo, beyond your headphones, beyond your car, which is like the three places that people mostly listen to music. You know, mm-hmm. the, when your music is in supermarkets and in dentist office and that sort of thing, then it's like it's it's in another dimension. So. Right. So anyways, uh, that, that letter kind of stuck home. And, uh, of course, you know, we haven't talked about it, but I learned a heck of a lot from Sam Cooke. You know, I worked with Sam. We wrote a song together. Sam and I and Lou Adler, we wrote, uh, Don't Know Much About History, mm-hmm. Don't Know Much Trigonometry. We wrote that song. And Sam was a... a Wait, you're saying you... Wonderful World. Co-wrote Wonderful, Wonderful World? Yeah, with Sam and, and Lou I Adler. I did not know this. Well, hey, man, <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know he was the Les Paul of the trumpet, like the first one to over it. So yeah. you're saying you were the one, uh, the well, first a, or one of the first to, to layer trumpet? I don't know if I was the first, but uh, that was the sound. You know, that was the uh, start of the Tijuana Brass sound. But I learned a lot from Sam. Sam had a really unique style. He came out of the gospel field. He was with the Solsters, as you know. Mm. And uh, Lou Adler and I were partners, and it was right after... Uh, we were hired by uh, Keen Records as staff writers, and it was right after Sam had that big record of You Send Me. Mm-hmm. And we became friends with Sam, who was a, an extraordinary guy. I mean, he just had, he oozed talent. Uh, he used to walk around with a, a notebook filled with lyrics. One day he came up to me and said, uh, Herbie, what do you think of this this lyric? You know, he, opened his notebook, and I was looking at it, thinking to myself, just to myself, man, this is corny. <laughs> this is really corny, you know? I said, well, how's the song? What does it sound like? He picked up his guitar, started singing this song, and I was thinking, holy moly, man. He turned this, this corny lyric into something magical right. because of his authenticity, his intent, his passion, where he put the notes, how he put the melody together with the notes, you know, the rhythm, the feel. And uh, that was just a real big aha for me. That that was the, you know, it ain't what you do, it's the way how you do it feeling moment. There's also like a, a simplicity to Sam Cooke's lyrics and, and, and his singing style. So did you pick... Is that part of what you picked up from him, sort of that keep it simple? No, keep it he, I don't straight. think he thought about keeping it simple. I think he thought about being authentic. I mean, he was uh, doing the follow-up to You Send Me, and he was singing um, I Love You for Sentimental Reasons. Mm-hmm. And the owner of the company uh, kind of dabbled as a piano player, but uh, not professionally. And we were in the recording booth listening to the playback, 
of one of the takes, and the owner goes up to Sam and says, Sam, you know, here in bar 12 and bar 18 and bar 44, you can put in a whoa-whoa. Yeah, that's what... An ad-lib or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the one that was the kind of the hook of the you send me thing. Right. And Sam looked at him and said, Jack? And his name wasn't Jack. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he says, you can't just put in a whoa-whoa whenever you want, man. You got to feel it. Yeah, and that was Sam. You know, he he, he was... Uh, Feeling an emotion. He was totally into it. You know, he, he was... a. I loved him. That's amazing. So is that what you ended up looking for to skip forward in in bands and artists that you were signing is that that specific thing that you're talking about right now well i you know i learned from him that uh i'll give you another example of him we, he was we he started you know he was the first artist to have his own uh record label called sar mm -hmm. if you remember that yeah and uh he was auditioning this uh artist from from uh, the caribbean beautiful looking guy green eyes, came in with a little stool to put his foot on while he was plucking his guitar. And I was looking at him while he was singing, thinking, man, this guy is great. This guy really has something magical. And Sam looked at me, he said, I, and I was in the control room, and this guy was out in the studio, and he, he came in, and he said, what do you think of this guy? I said, well, I think he's pretty good. You think I should sign him? He sa I said, I, I think so. He says, well, do me a favor. Turn your back on him and listen to him for five minutes. So I turned the chair around, and all of a sudden, I, I didn't receive anything. <laughs> the guy wasn't talking to me. Right. And so at that moment, I realized that, hmm, there's, there's something to learn. And Sam, you know, didn't sign the guy, and he, he, he told me that, you know, it's not about uh, how you can razzle-dazzle somebody with your looks or with your uh, movement. You know, it's just... it's. It's, uh, does he, does it touch you or does it not touch you, you know? Oh, if, that, only, if only Sam knew 60 years from now. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. It's the complete opposite. Well, you're absolutely right. But man, it changed with, uh, uh, you know, uh, computers and... Uh, the age of video and... Yeah, the, the music videos. And, and yeah, if you can razzle-dazzle somebody as a dancer and, and as a as a... Well, now it's like... Singing and talent really, I'm not even being sarcastic or, or bitter sounding. Like, I think it's maybe even 15% of the factor, and it's more about your personality. Yeah. Well, you there, could... there's an artist out now that currently has the number one song, and their whole appeal basically rides on their them going on Instagram live. Like, they're so uh, charismatic as a person that hmm. it makes you cheer for them. And they have like serious marginal talent, but even I find myself cheering for <laughs> marginal talent now in 2017, which is Yeah, well, that, yeah, I agree with you. But there's a different, that was a different time though when I'm talking about it. And then Sam taught me how to close my eyes and, and listen to the artist. And that's what I did with A&M when you asked me you know, about auditioning certain artists. I, I would always go in there with my eyes closed Hmm. and uh, hear the music and, and make a judgment on that. I mean, there was an artist, I don't want to mention her name, but she called me. She was an A&M artist, and she said she had this single that was a smash, man. You can't miss with this thing. This is, was beautiful. And she was in the studio, and she begged me to come by and listen to it. So I did. 
walked in the studio, closed my eyes, sat down on the couch. I said, okay, play it. And they, they played this thing. I, and I couldn't find any part of my body to move. You know, I, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't find my toe to tap or anything. You know, so there was no goosebump. There was zero goosebumps. And then I finally opened my eyes, and the artist, and the engineer, and the producer—they were dancing around the room. Man, they were just having the best time. And I just did not get it at all. <laughs> and so, well, that's that's always been my measure. You know, if it if it gets in me, then I'm I'm good at that. Can I take one wild guess? Yeah. Rita Coolidge? No. Okay, never no, mind. No, not Rita. But, okay. <laughs> uh, I liked Rita. You know, Rita was part of the uh, the the group that, uh, the Mad Dogs in English. Right? Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. that was a pretty amazing moment for me, too. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I would I would like you to at least uh, explain to me. I guess the perception of California musicians, and for, I mean, I'm putting you kind of in the jazz genre. I, I don't know if, do you consider yourself a jazz artist or an instrumentalist? Or um, like, I, I think I'm an improvisational artist. In, in, so see, it falls into jazz. Well, see, that's a whole long discussion because I think jazz needs a renaissance. It needs a revision. And Miles had it. You know, Miles kind of took it forward. He, I think he understood the genre just about probably better than any other jazz musician. You know, he would... I don't know. He was involved in in the melodies, in the feel, and always choosing the right musicians to play with. 
Um, and I think we need that. I, I think the day of, of playing the song and then every, everybody taking a course and then playing the song again, I, I think that's old hat. Well, I'm only asking because like the perception of, I guess the perception of the New York musician snobbery which New York is considered uh, cool and cold and not as laid back as California. So thus, there's sort of the perception that you have to suffer for your art or it's a gritty, you have to come from a gritty environment for your art. Whereas, you know, you look at these California musicians and I know that New Yorkers sort of look down on them. Like, was there, as far as like the, the perception of, your contemporaries at the time? Like, were you mixing it up with Chet Baker or, you know, the the, yeah. the California instrumentalist of the time period of the late 50s? Oh, early oh definitely, 60s? yeah. No, but I was in high school. Chet was playing uh, with the quartet with Jerry Mulligan at the play, a place called The Hague. Mm -hmm. And I used to go there to see them uh, in high school. <clears throat> uh, and it was... Uh, it was a great experience. Obviously, you know, there was no piano, just bass drums and Chet and uh, Jerry Mulligan. And the, and the four of them just made some music that was very, very avant-garde and beautiful at the time. And I, and I remember <laughs> when they wanted to take a break, Jerry Mulligan would get up to the microphone and say, shortly. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, just shortly. <laughs> Yeah. Cut to the chase. Yeah. <laughs> Just shortly. So about the, the Tijuana Brass, um, can I assume that that was just the Wrecking Crew and name only? Like, or was there a point where you actually, like on record, it, that has to be the Wrecking Crew because it was so clean sounding. Right. Well, me. up through the, the Whipped Cream and Other Delights album, that was not all the Wrecking Crew, but it was definitely Hal Blaine on drums. Uh -huh. Um Carol Kay sometimes on on uh, bass and guitar, uh, mainly bass. Um, yeah, I use musicians of my choice, and that's how it started. Because uh, you know, I had this idea of how I wanted the record to sound, and I I, um, I knew the musicians in town. So, but when it came to reproducing that live, yeah. Well, after the. Whipped Cream and Other Delights album got an actual group together, and and it was uh, always different. You know, it always gave me a feeling like it's not quite the sound that I made on record, but it's okay. I had a great drummer, Nick Ciroli, and uh, we. I, I went to the the musicians that I found. I went to their strength instead of trying to give them something that uh, they couldn't do. I tried to see what they could do really well, and, and I, the music kind of took a turn from that point on. What were your audiences looking like at the time period? Um, wow. When the, when the Tijuana Brass really hit after the Whipped Cream album, it was young and old. It was, it was a basic. <clears throat> I had this experience in uh, Seattle, Washington. We were playing uh, there with the new group, and the um, my partner Jerry Moss, I, I recorded a record called Third Man Theme. He loved it, you know. And on B side was a taste of honey. Right. So in Seattle, Washington, at the Edgewater Inn, every time I played Taste of Honey, the audience went wild. I mean, they they 
loved it for some reason. And uh, sometimes I played it twice in a row. <laughs> and I called Jerry. I was going to say, it's only two minutes, so how would you? Well, I mean, you know, they liked it so much, they let's hear it again. So okay. I called Jerry. I said, man, you're on the wrong side. It, it's Taste of Honey. He says, ah, oh, man, you can't. He says, it's not a good radio song. You, it's, it's uh, you know, it stops in the middle twice and right. slows down and you can't, you know, it wasn't suited for radio. I said, look at man, there's a focus group up here. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it's Taste of Honey. Let's try it. So we eventually turned it over, and that, that's the record that really opened the door for the Tijuana Brass, because after that, then we started performing in all the major shows, you know, the Ed Sullivan and Dean Martin and Andy Williams and Danny Kaye, all those big shows wanted us. So from that point on, we were sailing. So let's bring in Jerry Moss. Um, how, did you, how did you two meet? Well, we met... Uh, my story is we met him in New York. I met him in New York. His story is he met me in Los Angeles. But <laughs> uh, Lou Adler and I did a record that was a huge monster here in New York called Alley Oop. Uh -huh. And um, uh, our friend uh, Ted, mutual friend, friend Ted uh, Fagan, was the head promotion man at Madison Records. Okay. And uh, he went to school with Jerry, and he introduced me to Jerry. And uh, Jerry was a promotion man. He was, uh, you know, just getting going, but he had a great feel for records and a great feel for people. He's a real, you know, he's a real person. And uh, we got together in Los Angeles, started talking about um, producing a couple records. What he wanted to do a record with an actor friend of his, and I, I had this record that I was fooling around with called "Tell It to the Birds," that I, I was singing on. And uh, we put out Tell It to the Birds, and we put out this, this record that uh, he wanted to put out. And Tell It to the Birds started popping up. It started happening in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And we turned it over to uh, Dot Records for distribution. They gave us, uh, I think, $500 for that, plus a percentage. Mm -hmm. And uh, with that money, uh, we recorded The Lonely Bull which uh, was an offshoot of you know my, my visits to Tijuana. And I played it for a disc jockey friend. Uh, B. Mitchell Reed was a friend of, of mine that uh, was, he was the number one jock in, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I played the demo for him before it was released. And he said, where's the hook? I said, what do you mean the hook? He says, you know, you need a hook. I said, man, this is an instrumental. This is not a vocal. He says, you yeah, know, think about a hook. And that's when I, called uh, Ted Keeps at uh, Liberty Records, who was the head engineer. And he had this tape of 30,000 people screaming Ole at a bullfight. And he gave it to me to use. And uh, that was the, the thing I used right in the front of the Lonely Bull. And that was the supposed hook. And that catapulted the record, man. It took off. And it, it, it took off in, uh, it broke in, in San Francisco. Right. And there was a disc jockey, Jim Lang, who was also on the dating game, who was the MC of that yeah. for a while. And he broke that record. And I, I went up to uh, San Francisco to thank him, you know. I walked into the control room and I, you know, introduced myself. He was excited. And I said, man, I want to thank you for playing that record. Thank you so much. He looked at me, he says, I wouldn't have played it if I didn't like it. And from that point on, I never thanked a jock for playing the record. <laughs> I thought that was a very appropriate thing to say, you know? 
I would hope to think that they uh, like the record. That's why they're playing it. Wow. So wait, well, <coughs> you just, you mentioned Lou Adler, yeah. Which I'm thinking because you two went down similar paths, mm-hmm. and I know that eventually you did a distribution thing or association thing with his label. But uh, did you two never discuss? Uh, starting a partnership together like starting your own label at one point or not a label we were partners you know we wrote you know <laughs> lou dated my ex-wife <laughs> oh boy <laughs> no sound effects uh, yeah this, this is the sound quest effect free quest love supreme <laughs> but that's how i met luke he was um uh married to uh, after that he was married to my ex-wife's girlfriend damn and, lou and um we became friends. We're very, I love the guy. I mean, we're, we're very close. And uh, we started, he wrote poetry and I wrote some melodies to his, to his poetry. And we took around these demos after making demos records. And this one, well, <laughs> we took this demo to uh, specialty records okay. in uh, 1957 or so. And Sonny Bono was the head A&R guy at specialty records at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he listened to our records, and he said, "Look, I want to be honest with you guys. I think you guys ought to get out of the business." <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> um, but we like Son- Sonny. He was an interesting character. Um, That's cold, though. Yeah, that was cold. That was a cold thing to tell anyone. You know, I, I, I'd never do that. You know, even at A and M when I. Uh, interview and, and audition groups and I'd, I'd tell them if I didn't get it I'd say look at man just because I ain't receiving anything don't mean you ain't sending something so don't give up you know do whatever you know you're passionate about doing uh, anyway so uh, when I uh, you know got this job I told you before I was uh, writers for Keen Records and that's mm-hmm. how we met Sam Cooke and Bit of bim, bit of boom. A lot of things happen from that point. Because of, because of his so because of his New York association, have you ever done anything uh, in the Brill Building at all, or considered going to? No, but uh, you know all those writers, those great writers that you know Bert yeah. Backrack uh, recorded for us, and yeah. Car- Carol King, and all those. Uh, I know they came out of that place, and Jerry uh, Lieber and Stoller. I knew those guys. Lieber went to uh, Jerry Lieber went to the same high school I went to. He was a couple years ahead of me, but he was an extraordinary guy. He uh, he was very innovative. You know that that record of "There Goes My Baby" yeah. by the Drifters. Mm-hmm. It was his idea to put strings on. That was before anybody had put a put string section on. on a on a on a record. And uh, the story of him dancing around the studio, kind of. Uh, Telling the string players, you know, what he wanted to hear it was very vivid. And uh, those guys, you know, obviously made some wonderful, wonderful records together. So how easy or challenging was it to form your own label? Because, you know, I mean, today it's so do-it-yourself. People can make a, a, a complete album on their laptop very little resources and the quality is just as good as spending, you know, an entire budget in the studio. But, you know, why, 
did you not consider like, oh, maybe uh, we should take this to Columbia or maybe we should take this to, uh, you know, Mercury or something like an established label? Because I, I tend to think that to be to be a creative is just hard enough. Now you got to be a creative person and you got to be a businessman. Right. Well, lucky for me, you know, I'm not a businessman and uh, my partner, Jerry Moss, was, is. Um, but it's still your business, though. I'm sure that yeah. you guys have to have like a 50-50 kind of like, okay, I got to make some decisions and come to meetings and shake oh, hands. Oh, and yeah, definitely. But I, I I had this major experience. See, I recorded for RCA Victor before A&M Records. I, I recorded for them for about a year and a half, okay. maybe two years. And I was I filed everything I didn't like about how they treated me. <laughs> you know, I was a number to them. I was I wasn't a Herb Alpert. I was uh, three eight two five one take three. You know that type of guy. Okay. And uh, in this recording facility they had that was very ice cold. It was you know white on white on white on white. And then in the control room, uh, it was no different. It was a, a cold place and. I was listening to a playback of one of the songs I did, and I wanted to push up the bass channel because I, I needed more bass on the sound. And I went over to the board, and I lifted the bass up and uh, with the pot, and uh, the engineer slapped my hand. <laughs> get out of here steve wow <laughs> no wait yeah, he did. i'm allowed to do that no okay. you're not allowed okay. to smack people steve <laughs> and uh you know i he said don't ever touch this board again this is a union house and blah 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 and yeah 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 and so i filed all that thinking like man shouldn't uh a record business or company shouldn't revolve around the artist you know and that's what i tried to do at a&m A&M was a really um, peaceful company, and we were thinking about the artist and had this... Ex well, you know, when, when the Lonely Bull happened, our distributors around the country said, why don't you guys take the money and run? You know, you got lucky with this Tijuana brass thing. You're close proximity to Tijuana, and uh, it's not going to happen again like that. It's an instrumental. The instrumentals don't happen that often. Mm-hmm. And so that gave us fodder for trying to you know, hang on to it, see how long we could hang on. And they wanted a, a, a Lonely Bull album, which we gave them, and that sold well. So we tried to hang on to it as long as we could, and we started uh, uh, recording a couple other artists. And, and the big aha for me, and this was the moment that I realized that A&M was going to be successful, we signed Waylon Jennings. Waylon was living in Phoenix, Arizona, and he was... He played with Buddy Holly, and he was, uh, for some lucky reason, he didn't get on that airplane. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I used to fly down to Phoenix. We, we signed him to a four-year contract. He used to fly down there and, and record him. And he uh, really wanted to be a country artist. And I, I you know, did a record with him called Four Strong Winds that was excellent. It was really had a good feel. Uh, he got this call from uh, Chet Atkins, who heard that record and made some, you know, overtures to uh, to Waylon, which he probably shouldn't have done because he was Waylon was under contract to us. Mm -hmm. But he said, you know, when I, when Waylon gets free, he'd like to talk to him. 
Waylon told me about that, and at that point, I wanted to uh, take Waylon just a little more pop. Waylon wanted to be a country artist, so <clears throat> he was all excited about Chet Atkins calling because Chet Atkins was the uh, messiah of country music at that time. Right. He was the A&R head of uh, RCA Victor. And so we talked it all over. Uh, I talked it over with my partner, Jerry, and we decided to let Waylon out of his contract so he could go with Chet. And he, we had about three more years on his contract. And I remember the day that we signed his release, and uh, I looked at Jerry, I said, this guy's gonna be a big star. And Jerry said, yeah, I think so too. And we let him out. And I thought from that point on, man, if we could be that honest, that authentic, and that caring for our artists, we were gonna do, uh, we were gonna do okay. Who was the uh, the first artist you guys signed outside of releasing uh, your own music? Well, there were a couple artists. One was George McKern, who was the bass singer with the Pilgrim Travelers. Okay. And that was like the number one gospel group in, in the country, which I learned a lot from, by the way, uh, just thinking back on that as you mentioned that, because I used to watch them record, and, and it was just the five guys with uh, George McKern, who called himself Oopy. Mm -hmm. uh, he was singing bass. And, and, and just a, a, a guy playing snare with brushes. No, no big deal, no big back backbeat, you know, no two and four slamming at you. And uh, these guys would, would just make you feel like, wow, and this, this unrelenting time zone that these guys were in and the feeling and the... Uh, the energy that they had, it was just like swinging, swinging hard. Mm -hmm. And I thought from that point, man, you don't need all that stuff to, to make a good feel. It has to just, all the musicians have to gel together in, in, a, in a common cause. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Okay, so George McKern was one. Uh, we had a group called the Kenjalairs. That was a vocal group. Didn't do very well, but they had a nice sound. And then Waylon came along. Yeah, but the Tijuana Brass was, uh, we were kind of supporting A&M along until around 1967 or 8. We signed a group called the We Five. Mm -hmm. You were on my mind. It, it, was, it became number one record. And then 66, well, in 66, we signed Brazil 66, Sergio Mendes in Brazil 66. That was a... A big one for us, because they had a really unique uh, sound. You know, we auditioned them, and remember walking in this room and hearing this hybrid sound of Brazilian classical jazz, Brazilian jazz, American jazz, pop. It had that whole thing, and then my my wife Lonnie was the lead singer. Yo, I lost my mind when I realized that. I think uh, she was promoting her book. And when she mentioned that, and then it finally hit me that, oh, my God, she's the, the one of the female voices of Brazil 66. Yeah, she was not one of the... She, she was, was the? The singer. Yeah, I doubled her. I got that. <laughs> I bumped with the Tijuana Brass twist on her, on Sergio's thing, because they had another girl. There were two girls. Yeah. And one girl was uh, very beautiful. Right. But uh, she was not a recording artist, you know. She just didn't have that have that sound. And when I heard so Lonnie's, your wife was that voice. Yeah, she had that voice, and that was her sound on, you know, uh, Mashkinada, Fool on the Hill, and all those 
early records that I produced with uh, Sergio. Um, what was the question? Well, no, I'm just going through your initial roster of A&M. Oh, okay. Like, dealing with those those artists. Um, and I guess in the, in the 70s. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, wait, we're getting awfully close to um, to CTI. Yes, let's not skip CTI. Yeah, and Quincy. Well, Quincy, man, you know, Quincy is Quincy. <laughs> he's a unique character. Yeah, he's one of those guys, you know, you don't have to, you don't see him for eight, ten months, a year or three, and, and he, you're like old buddies right from the get-go. He's, he's, he has a magnetic personality. He's brilliant. He has 18 balls going up in the air at the same time, mm-hmm. and they're all, you know, worthwhile. They're all doing something interesting. We, we had the, we had the, the, uh, the fortune of uh recording our show at uh the former AM Studios, which is now Jim Henson Studios, which I guess was formerly the Charlie Chaplin Studios. Right. Um you know, even now, past I'm sure that anyone that goes through there that has had some sort of history there, there's there's a feeling that you get in that environment when when the gates close and you're just in side of that world in, in that environment. So the entire A&M operations was inside of the former Chapman Studios. Like that's where you, 
as far as the studio was concerned and the offices, everything was in the that oh, environment? Yeah. Well, not in the early days. The early days, it was in my garage. I mean, that's where we started. <laughs> well, yeah, then. I know. And, it was in yeah. and then we had an office on Sunset Boulevard for a while that was, uh, you know, a little modest place. But then we bought uh, the studios, I think, 19... I don't remember the year. How did, how did you avoid the the ugly side of the business? Because I know that to be an upstart, to get your stuff played, I know there's a lot of handshaking, kissing babies, p- politicking, uh, grease and palms. I know that you know the 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 element. What's the the New York guy uh, used to have roulette records? Uh, Morris Levy. Yeah. I believe. Like, how do you? How do you deal with people that see you like, oh, getting success, and hey, I like a piece of that, or you know that? Because I mean, you guys were essentially always an independent label, right? Yeah. I, well, that, I personally sidestepped all that stuff, but, but how but, can you when people are like, hey, you know, uh, let me let me bring my 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 wife sings, and uh, let me get a piece of the like. Again, you have to be a business person, also. Like, how how do you avoid? How do you avoid that, especially when the late 60s and the early 70s was so, record labels were so corrupted? I mean, you didn't hear about that with your label. You didn't hear that with Mo Austin at Warner's. But, you know, definitely I know that a lot of those mom and pop labels that were trying to get the status of a CBS or a Mercury, you know, there's a lot of grime that they had to avoid and... How do you sidestep? It? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I never got involved personally. I heard about it, but uh, it, it wasn't something that interested interested me, and I, I I wasn't good at that. You know, I didn't. I just know about trying to be me. You know, I'm, it's <clears throat> it's tough enough just to be yourself. You know, and work in that world. I'm an artist. You know, I'm I'm eighty five percent in the right side of my brain. I paint, sculpt, make music, and um, I'm a lucky guy. So I always, you know, when we, A&M started growing and we had these business meetings every Thursday with lawyers and accountants and all that, man, my eyes would glass over. That would just like, holy moly, man, this ain't me. So I, I kind of found a way to, you know, get out of that thing because it was, uh, it would it would dig into my creativity. So, so at on the business end, what was your role? Did you look for new artists? Did you listen to tapes? Jerry, this brother and sister act that we got to sign, man. Their harmonies are really crazy. They're called the Carpenters. We got to do it. Like, how do you convince? I didn't have to convince anybody. When I wanted, I signed the Carpenters because I loved them, period. No, <laughs> there was no, you know, we didn't have a committee. You know, it was just my office was right next to Jerry's. And uh, I just said, you know, I'm signing these kids. You know, they were great. But I used the Sam Cooke method with them. You know, I they... Heard, I heard this tape, um, <clears throat> put it on in my my office, and closed my eyes, and it felt like Karen's voice was coming right out at me and sitting next to me on the couch. I said, I got to meet this girl. You know, she has this very interesting voice, and she didn't think of herself as a singer. She, she was a drummer, uh, and a pretty darn good drummer, too. So uh, signed them, and luck be having. Well, when you heard those <clears throat> tapes... Were those harmonies hitting you like the way that 
the final product was. Oh, yeah. No, there was something there. Because Richard, uh, and, and, and it wasn't just Karen. It was it was a combination of the two of them. Uh, Richard Carpenter is a very creative guy. He, he has great taste in songs, and he was great with choral harmonies. And uh, he was very instrumental in, in, in their success. But in 1970 you know they had a couple records that didn't do great and and people in my own company were saying man man why'd you sign these guys i mean that that was the rumble i was hearing you know they're a little too cute they're little they don't fit on on radio blah 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 so people thought they were like more bubblegummy yeah bubblegummy music adult (laughs) uh uh-huh and so um then i gave them close to you i had that song that uh bert backrack and hal david wrote And uh, they recorded it, and I didn't like the recording. Karen was playing drums, and I re- they recorded it again. It was I thought, wasn't it? I said we need more oomph. We need you know, let's get them guys. Let's get the uh, wrecking the crew. Wrecking crew. Right. So Hal Blaine came in, and Joe Osborne was on bass, and they made that record. And that record, I remember after they finished it, I played it for Bert over the phone, and he flipped out. And that record was a monster. And then, of course, you know, after all, the same people in my company that were saying, why'd you sign those guys, all of a sudden thought I was a genius. Christmas, <laughs> bo- Christmas bonus time, right? <laughs> yeah. Did you Did you give Burt Bacharach his, were you the, the start of his, because I know he wrote This Guy's In Love With You, correct? Yeah, he wrote This Guy's In Love With You with Hal uh, David. Hal David. Uh, right. Yeah, and that was their first number one record. Which was really interesting, man. It was their first. So that started the ball rolling for. Well, not for them. No, no, they had umpteen hits before that, but that was the first number one. Number one. Yeah, no, they have all sorts of records that uh, were beautiful. I mean, they're really. uh, Bert is a very, very unusual artist. You know, he has his own voice, his own style. He, you can't really second guess his melodies. They just kind of take you someplace, and they're. There's a, a logic to it, but only he knows <laughs> how to get there. Right. What made you decide to sing <clears throat> on uh, This Guy's In Love With You? Well, it was uh, a television show we were doing for NBC. Oh. And and uh, the director, um, Jack Haley Jr., asked me to try and sing a song, you know, because uh, he was tired of photographing me with the trumpet in my mouth. <laughs> so I called Bert and... Asked him if there was a song that he, he, you know, starts whistling in the shower, or maybe a song he recorded but didn't like the recording. Anyways, he sent me this girl's in love with you that he recorded with Dionne Warwick, and I liked uh, the song a lot, but the, the gender had to be changed because uh, mm-hmm. it was written for her. Called Hal David, flew to New York. He was living in New York at the time, and I uh, was there while he was changing the uh, the lyric, and I asked him the same question as, as I was leaving his house, and he sent me uh, close to you, and I was going to use that as the follow-up to uh, This Guy's In Love With You, which was zoomed to number one. It, it In two weeks, that record was number one after the television show hit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I recorded close to you. I had a pretty good recording. <clears throat> and the engineer, who was a friend of mine, Larry Levine, um, I said, listening to the playback, I thought it was good. I said, Larry, tell me the truth. What do you think? 
He says, man, you sound terrible singing this song. He was just that blunt honest with you? Yeah, like, well, he was a friend. How many naysayers are in your life, man? <laughs> no, that's good. You know, <clears throat> well, um, I'm not saying your life should be full with yes men, but. Oh, look at I'm I'm I like to have people around me that give me the truth. That's that's Was he right? Well, I think he was right, although I still like the record, but I put it away. I didn't uh, you know, I got uh, gun shy. Wow. So, uh, in 1970 when the Carpenters had a couple records out there that didn't happen, then I gave uh, Richard uh, the Close to You, and that was the the start of their monstrous career because i mean that man that when that once that door opened for the carpenters it was like watch out man <laughs> it happened all over the world it was fantastic okay so what was your relationship like how did the creed taylor association come to be <clears throat> well well creed in my opinion creed is one of the most uh, uh he, he was one of the great jazz producers I think of all time. He just had a feel for what to do with Wes and do, you know. He made some extraordinary records with uh, Bill Evans, and he just had a feel for how to market them, how to how to package it. You know, they packaged the uh, the record properly, and he, the he sequenced it properly. Uh, I think he knew what to do. Uh, that record he made with. Um, the organ player, uh, Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Smith. That's one of my favorite records. You know, the one he did with uh, "Walk on the Wild Side." And uh, I don't know. He was just uh, he was looking for a, a different distribution deal, and we were honored to have him because uh, I, I just love him as a producer. Were you guys not worried? Well, because you guys had a lot of distribution <laughs> deals. Uh, were you guys not worried at all about? I don't know if branding was still a thing the way it is now. Like people want to have their branding set now and in motion, make that front and center before even the product. But, you know, was there any fear that, cause I didn't even know, like I know, I guess now that, that, that I'm an adult that, you know, like tapestry is A&M related, even though it was on, Lou's album and all those Cheech and Chong records. Well, I it was on to. Ode, Ode records. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, you know, uh, but I'm just saying that, was there any fear of like the label not being uh, <clears throat> up in front and you having these other subsidiary labels under you? No, I don't, we, I don't think we ever thought about that. We were just putting out good music, you know. My partner Jerry has the same feeling I have about music. We're, we try to make, uh, you know, in the early days when we started in 62, you know, there were a lot of record companies operating out of the trunks of their car. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies would, you know, get one hit record and then they'd make an album with fillers. You know, they'd have the hit record and they have a bunch of junkie records, you know, that are Some part covers of it. And yeah, just things that were just... In, economically good to do i guess i don't know but we never wanted to do that we wanted to you know give the public a fair shot and uh make uh music that we would purchase ourselves and then when the lonely bull and the and the brass started happening we hired a a, a, a guy that was uh, working at the pressing plant and and turned into be our quality control person so all the records and all the masters that came out of A&M were really as clean as they could be. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, it, we weren't thinking about how much money we could make, how, how much you know good music could we put out there, and and still you know be honest and make a good living doing it. And that's what was it. That's what we were pursuing. How big was the staff once you guys got to the Chaplin Studios? Well, at the Chaplin Studios, we had 33 people at that time. Okay. Started with the two, then there were three, five, ten, you know, and all of a sudden it got way out of hand, you know, towards the end. I didn't know anybody in the company. In the beginning, you knew everybody by name and... Well, in the beginning, it was just Jerry myself, you know, that would make all the decisions and... Who who was your, if you can recall, who was like your star A and R? Who was the A and R guy that like <clears throat> just brought you like your top five favorite acts to the label? Like who was the the one guy that you could depend on? Well, you know there were some guys in 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 London that uh, did really well when we got uh, okay. And here then, we go, squeeze. Well, <laughs> squeeze, yeah, yeah. But then. Um, uh, so you're saying that there was an A and M division in London? Well, yeah, because yeah, that would explain and yeah, the police Jackson. and Joe Cocker and okay, yeah. Well, we had we had Super Tramp, which were, they were huge in Europe. So all the all the British associated A and M acts, yeah, they came out were with, signed and right. When did you guys expand? Pass? Well, yeah, okay, that was around 1969, I believe. You know when uh, Jerry. You know, thought that you know our our image at the time was kind of easy listening, kind of cool music, mm-hmm. and he wanted to you know jump into the 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 frying pan. Yeah, the real stuff, the stuff that was happening. You know, a little more edgy, and that's when Joe Cocker and uh, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, you know, got going. And that was the first time that I was kind of indoctrinated into that type of music because I, I was not a stuffed shirt, but you know, I came up through the classical field. And then I was making my own music, and when I uh, I remember walking into the soundstage when uh, Cocker and uh, you know, Leon Russell was playing piano, and they had two drummers, and mm-hmm. Rita Coolidge and the singers were doing the thing with uh, they were rehearsing for an upcoming upcoming tour. I remember walking into the soundstage to listen to him, and I, I had my eyes closed, you know, the way I usually do. I, it was open enough to see where I was going to sit. I sat on the sound on, on the stage, and all of a sudden, Joe started singing, and I got goosebumps. You know, I said, wow, that's a sound. And I opened my eyes, and Joe was gyrating like he was playing guitar or something, you know, as he was singing and totally into it. And I said, hmm, I like that. <laughs> So that from that point on, I was uh, the door opened for me for rock and roll and that other type of music. So you always kept that Sam Cooke theory of I gotta, I gotta hear it first before I see it, before I open my eyes yeah, and see what's. Yeah, definitely. I, I I use that always. Yeah, there was a there was a female group that was uh, floating around New York. I can't remember their name, but they all the record companies supposedly were interested in signing them. And so I flew to New York, and uh, I think they're Basil. They were playing at that one of that those clubs. Uh, Basil. I don't uh, oregano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Uh, sweet Basil. Yeah, that's where they were playing. And and so I I walked in there and I had my eyes closed and kind of open enough to see where the 
seed was. And I sat down, started listening to him, and zero, man, zero came out. I didn't get him at all. I finally opened my eyes, and these chicks, you know, with tattoos, and they were playing, you know, this stuff that was, like, loud. You know, certainly give them credit for that, but I didn't get it. So I didn't had no interest in signing them. And actually, I don't think they even signed to another label. I was going to say, who who they wind up being? I don't think they signed. So, uh, yeah, no, I used that approach. I think that's, that's the one. Uh, and it got harder and harder because, you know, like when MTV came along and... Uh, you know, like we talked about before, you know, you see these guys dancing like wizards and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that all of a sudden people started listening with their eyes and that was a whole other groove, you know? <laughs> all right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It should be, it should be noted, especially uh, for our listeners that um, aren't that familiar, um, you kind of were the, not the impetus, but uh, a lot of those promotional videos. For our listeners out there, um, if your band had international hits and they weren't able to travel to certain countries at the at the snap of you know in a snap and get there immediately, um, that was the initial reasons why promotional performances were used. Um, for those artists so say uh if the lonely bull or taste of honey is 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 really hitting in uh chili 
or 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 in Japan, and you can't get there immediately to you know to tour, uh, you would send a promotional clip of you playing, uh, and then they would play them on these particular shows. Hence the idea of early videos. But your your performance videos, um, at least you know all the ones that I that I binged on on YouTube, they had concepts to them. Like you. Yeah, you're kind of the purveyor yeah, of well, of the music video. Well, you got to think it through. You can't just throw something in there. You know, we've had artists that didn't want to do music videos. There was Joe Jackson, who had the number one record, you know, and uh, not a particularly good-looking guy, or, or he couldn't dance and he couldn't, you know, didn't have his thing. He's interesting, though. He's good-looking. Come on. Well, I, I'm saying that probably from his, in, his, in the, right. from his point of view, you right. know, I think. And he just didn't think it would be appropriate for him to do a music video, which he never did. So, um, And then you got, you know, artists like Janet Jackson, who, like, uh, she had it. You know, you, you, she didn't get by on, on Michael's talent. Right. Janet had something. You know, she was she, she had her own magic. And, and and it seems like these these artists that could dance had an upper hand because if they could dance really well, they could swing. They 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 always put the songs in the in the proper uh, proper groove, mm-hmm. and uh, they always made you feel good. You know. You know now now that I think about it, even beyond. The Tijuana Brass videos and whatnot. Um, your videos for, uh, it, it, particularly when I, you know, when I was coming up as a teenager, um, you know, BET was playing the mess out of "Keep Your Eye on Me" and and yeah. with Diamonds. It's weird though. I, I love the fact that uh, I wonder now that as an adult. Was it important to you to have such a heavy anti-drug message? Because even with "Keep Your Eye on Me" with the plane going by and just yeah, no that's kind of an sort. ugly thing right there that happened. You know, no, 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 I know, but like it, it actually, and even in the diamonds video, some some stoner kid comes up to you and you're like, "Just say no to drugs, kid." And I'm like, "Were you imagining that like some 13 year old kid in Philadelphia is looking like?" Okay, Herb Albert, I'll, I'll just say no. He, he told me to stop smoking outside just an hour ago. I yeah. swear to God. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he did. Yeah. No, but my point was that uh, watching a string of your videos, they kind of pushed the envelope. Even the you did the putting on the Ritz uh, video, which uh-huh. I think was like a one camera. One take camera, thing. yeah, one at six takes, but one camera. So, are these ideas coming from you? That like I, I know you're saying that you know, it shouldn't be visual; it should be audio. Like the 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 musicality should give you goosebumps, and that's what sells you. Which I agree with you, but you can't also discount the fact that you've kind of went the extra miles in a lot of your videos way above what people were going through at that time you know with 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 visuals like even with the whipped cream album cover like you had to know that visuals play an important role with it and i can't oh. believe i skipped the whipped cream album cover. yes uh that's that goes without saying that the whipped cream <laughs> album was 
might be influential in so many ways. Yeah. yeah. It sold six million units, and that's the reason right. why he right. sold more records than the Beatles in 1960s. How many yeah. units did just the cover sell for you? Uh, well, I mean, the album <laughs> sold 14 million, but I mean, the cover. And was it know, hard to get all that whipped cream on that girl? Yeah, well. <laughs> I meant in the record stores. Was it seen as risque? Because. Well, at the time, it seemed risque, but obviously. But looking at it now, it looks like she's wearing a wedding dress. Who, yeah, yeah, well, then she's wearing uh, shaving cream, by the way. And she was three months pregnant, by the way. And by the way, this yes. guy comes up to me like a month and a half after that record was released. He says, man, this is the greatest album cover I've ever seen. I love the girl. I love the concept, the, the whipped cream, blah, blah, blah. I said, thank you so much. What about the music? He says, I haven't had a chance to listen to it. <laughs> you know? So that's... Who's the girl? Uh, Dolores Erickson. She was a professional model. and uh, She's so yes. beautiful. Yeah. yeah, she's beautiful. Yes, she was. Now now I see where the Ohio players got their inspiration for <laughs> the, the Honey album. Yeah. So I guess the Roots need to make an album called Sugar. <laughs> just, just keeping them with sweet snacks. I think Stanley Torrentine has the sugar category covered. Mm. CTI, Jay. Yeah, I, I know. Sugar, <laughs> can, sugar. Can, can you give us more CTI stories? Like Gula Matari is, I mean, I mean, wow. Was that done at A&M Studios? Oh, uh, yeah, I believe so. All Quincy's so. Yeah. CTI stuff was done there? <clears throat> um, Quincy was on A&M. Quincy wasn't on CTI. Yeah, but the yeah. Do uh, you mean the very early the A M the A and M C T I stuff? Oh, like, yeah. Uh -huh. um, I guess I can assume that uh, because of the proximity of the brothers Johnson and Billy Preston's band, uh, and then winding up on A and M via with Quincy is some sort of A and M connection as well. But I mean, at what point are you? able to kind of back away as the A in Alpert and Moss and just let it run on its own? Like, are you well, driving no. in the car one day and you hear Strawberry Letter 23 and you're like, oh, cool, oh, that's on my label. Like, no, we didn't give up. We were always there. You know, Jerry and I made the major decisions together. Uh, the everyday nuts and bolts I, I was not a part of, but uh, the overall the brushstroke of the company and the feeling and the uh, artists that come came through. Yeah, we were there. Uh, yeah, but we had a, a, a Tommy LaPuma was producing records for us. Who was you know got his start with us. And uh, I was going to say, who who was the? Did you guys have a house system where you had your house producers and your house engineers to engineer that sound? Yeah, we had our own recording facilities. So uh, you know, we made those. Uh, state-of-the-art we had the best equipment and great acoustics and you know like i had like i said i had that experience at rca victor that uh, the studio was cold so i was very intent on making our recording facilities very uh user-friendly colors and feel i think you when you walk into a studio like the studio we're in right now you know you, you know darn well the sound is good in here mm -hmm. it uh, has that feeling and um Incidentally, we're uh, at Electric Lady Studios uh, in New York City. Yeah, the House of Hendrix. So uh, we wanted to make sure if we had that vibe, and 
I think the artists uh, appreciate that. In in Studio B, I put in this huge crystal, like eight hundred pound crystal, embedded in the in the wall. And a lot of artists would come in there and and like. Uh, uh, it's still there. Well, well, well it's not, he took his. When I took he left, them. I took the monster out, and they replaced. And they it. replaced it. Yeah, they put yeah. a different one in there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and uh, you know, artists would come in there even if they weren't recording in that particular studio. They they'd stand in front of that crystal, and it'd be like they're at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. You know, it's energy. When Shaka Khan walked in that studio with us, uh, she acknowledged that you know, sure, the energy of the crystal. So, uh, I know that as an artist. Um, there's one particular project I wanted to talk to you about. Um, Synchronicity? No, man. <laughs> I'm talking about Herb, Herb's own career. Um, you did an album with Hugh Masekela. Yeah, really. And I believe 77. I um, Soul Train is one of my all-time favorite shows. And kind of the thing that I've done as an adult is collect every episode. So um, seeing you kind of make the the quote graceland move before <laughs> paul simon did um was very interesting especially in 1977 when people's eyes and you know you had south african artists and you know kind yeah. of world artists with you on this project um what was your intent was your intent to bring attention to uh or relief to those artists from South Africa that not really, you know. I just liked, I liked Hugh. I liked the way he played, and uh, when we talked, he felt that the music I was making was kind of similar to the groove of what they do. You know, not not necessarily all the rhythm stuff, but that there was a compatible sound, mm -hmm. and so we recorded together. And I think that that one record we did, man, I think is great, uh, Skokian. Yeah. It's yeah. it's it it happens, man. And there's you know we had great musicians, uh, and and Leta Mbulu was Leta singing Mbulu, right, uh, in the right. background with my wife Lonnie, mm -hmm. and um, had this great guitar player from the Caribbean, Freddie, who was uh, you know a, a groove machine, mm -hmm. and uh, couple other guitar players i can't think of their names right now but uh freddie used to every morning i'd come in when we were doing the album i said freddie how you feeling he'd say everything is everything <laughs> 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 and he'd say that every day uh but i know i loved working with you we we traveled we did uh concerts uh together and uh had a great time it was all always you know fresh it was always lively um, you did one studio album, one live album. We did exactly that. Yeah, yeah. The studio album came first, and we did we recorded our concerts, and they're both good. They're both good albums, and some unusual players. Guangua from uh, Botswana was playing uh, trombone, and he, man, this guy sounded like a wild element elephant. Man, he just had a whole different concept for playing jazz. So it was really it was fun playing with uh, with them. I enjoyed it. I guess I'd be remiss if we didn't mention also Billy Preston recording for the label. Um, who, of course, you know, Steve and I are, are we can go on and on about your, the artists that have been on the label. Uh, 
I'm also forgetting that the well, sex, I'll tell you who you the might... sex pistols at one point were yeah. on and <laughs> Yeah. I want to know. <laughs> I do want to know what that week was like. Uh, but who are your just in your general, your 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 starting five. Who are the five artists that you're like I'm so proud that I've I've had them on the label? Um I'll tell you who comes to mind first is is Cat Stevens. The Can you guy, talk about Cat a little bit? What what about Cat Cat was just a real talent. I mean he he just had he oozed talent. He was him and a guitar, his passion. He was something special. Of course the the uh the police those those uh, three guys for I mean, one two three yeah yeah it sounded like seven eight guys an army sounded yeah. like an army and I remember seeing it at the whiskey a go go in L A and thinking wow that's a good sound and then Sting was jumping around the stage like he was on a pogo stick mm-hmm. and uh, they were all fine musicians really good musicians. And of course, when Sting went off by himself, you know that was a whole other dimension. Because Sting is a is a brilliant guy and a and a very sensitive, emotional, and uh, good guy. You know, mm-hmm. so he would be one. Let's see. Of course, Sergio Mendez in Brazil '66, of course, and Burt Backrack and Janet Jackson, of course. Um, There's so many artists that it'd be hard to uh, nail down my Squeeze, top five. Squeeze, right? Squeeze would be probably in the top five. I'm, 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 I'm being, I'm trying to make it. He's such I'm, a Squeeze I'm fan, a big Squeeze fan. Yeah, now. okay. Um, but uh, and no, there's Super Tramp. There was Frampton. There was yeah. Well, Frampton's another guy, man. This guy, you know, he was uh, really a good-looking kid when you know he recorded. Um, Oh, baby, I love your way. Right. That thing. But he was one hell of a good guitar player. Guy could really play. And then, you know, he had that look. And he was a really good artist and a gentleman. I mean, I I tried to surround myself with artists that really uh, had a nice vibe. I, I, I can't, I couldn't hang with the, the Sex Pistols. I mean, that was just uh, something that was going against my grain. Who whose idea was it to introduce? I mean, you you do acknowledge that they're culturally relevant. Oh yeah, but you know whose idea was it to sign them, and whose idea was it to drop them two weeks later? Well, I was. I guess it came out of the the office in London, but uh, okay. The uh, like, do 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 you? Are you? Because uh, I can't think of any artists that you have that have been controversial. But did you not see that the controversy of offending the world could be a thing that can also move units? And oh, as I, long I, as long as they're talking about us, that's all that I, matters. I, no, I didn't care about that stuff. It's uh, I didn't like the energy that they brought to our lot. To tell you the truth, I passed that on. But uh, no, I didn't. I don't. I don't get that. That 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 doesn't work for me. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Had has there any been an artist that you were in pursuit of that you almost had? Yeah. That who who's like your your three regrets? Like ah, I w- really wish I had them more. Well, the number one would be the Beatles. <laughs> you had hey. a chance to sign the Beatles? Shit. Oh, excuse me. Um, yeah, you can say that, and okay. I'll say it too. Shit. What? Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone had a chance because they were like going around to. Uh, get some distribution deal blah 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 so anyways 
I don't know if we had a door into get them, but uh, yeah, they, I think they were available around that time we started. Okay, wow. so yeah, Prince. What? I heard those tapes. I said, man, let's sign this guy. There is something happening here. And um, my partner had lunch with him and, and his manager, and he, he, he told me that he was like, didn't have any charisma. <laughs> that he was like very quiet and very reserved. He didn't think. And then all of a sudden, you know, people were offering him all sorts of money, and Warner Brothers offered him, you know, eight zillion dollars. So we we passed on him. But I I knew this guy was going to be a an artist. He 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 was an artist. Wow, based on charisma, because I would think that if you're eccentric, when you see eccentric artists then that to me is the sign of they're going to make it. Because I don't know any artist that's just all that compatible. If you show me a compatible, friendly artist, I'll show you someone that's not at the top of their... Yeah, no, I agree with you. But, uh, you know, the people were throwing around these big companies, big corporations. You know, we were just a we were just a partnership. And you, you throw around a couple million bucks to an artist and you make a mistake, hey, you're in, you could you're be in, in trouble. trouble. So uh, that was... Uh, who else did you have a chance with? Well, I think most of the other artists uh, all worked out. You know, we had some great jazz artists. Stan Getz recorded for us. Paul Desmond, mm -hmm. Jerry Mulligan, Willie Bobo. Uh, of course, Wes Montgomery was on CTI. Wes was, you know... He was he was something special, you know that that sound of his. You know, I thought it was like, wow, what a magical sound. You know, and I was doing this um, television show, and and Wes was on the show. I was the MC, and I was waiting for Wes to come in for the uh, uh, rehearsal, wondering, you know, what he used as a setup. Well, he came in from with a little Fender guitar amplifier that was all it was small. It was, you know filled with cobwebs in the back, it was dusty and funky, and he plugged in and bang, there, there, <laughs> there was the magic. There was that magic sound. So there, there again, you know, it's, it's, it's all, uh, the sound comes from inside the, the artist. It's not uh, the instrument. It's that sound that they want to hear, and that's the sound that comes out. Okay, so in 80, when you, well, 79, when you did Rise, yeah, um, which you know brought you back to the forefront. Um, were you surprised at all by the success of it and in the reception? Uh, after this rise was recorded live in the studio. I played the horn as we doing the track. <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm laughing at one reason. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, whenever that breakdown happens, yeah, I'm, I'm a DJ and mm. my monitor speakers are loud as hell. So of course you know when that breakdown happens and you guys are like laughing at each other in the background. Yeah, that was added, obviously. I always look at my MC guy because I think he's. I'm always looking at him like, "Why are you talking on the microphone?" And he's <laughs> like, "That's not me. That's the record." And it happens every time I spin that record. Yeah, like, well, that's a it's a really really good record. And when I was, uh, I think it was the the third take. Listening to the playback in the studio, and I got goosebumps. I said, "Wow, this could be a big record. This this has something." And I remember, 
walking up behind Julius Wechter, who was playing uh, marimba on on the, on the cut. I said, "Ma'am, what do you think, Julius?" He says, "I don't dig it." I said, what, what's wrong with it? <laughs> the naysayers. <laughs> yeah, you know, he said, "Yeah, he, he couldn't uh, handle that boom, 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 four to the floor." You know, that bothered him. He thought you were trying to go too much disco. Or... And it, I don't think he. You know what I learned from Sam Cook was to be an audience to my music. I don't, when I'm recording, I don't listen to the trumpet player. I don't listen to anything but the overall feeling. If the overall feeling strikes me, I'm in. If the overall feeling doesn't strike me, I, I try to do something to make it work. But uh, Rise had that feeling. I don't know, there was something about it. And you know, it didn't start out like that. It, it, my, my nephew, Randy, uh, Badass Albert wrote wrote it with the with he's his, the drummer right? No, he's not a musician. He wrote it with the with the Andy Armour, and they had it. They wanted to do it as a disco. It was originally at 120 beats per minute, and I said, "Wait a minute, no man, this is a nice melody. Let's let's slow it down." And we finally slowed it down to 100 beats per minute. I said, well, "You know, every now and then people want to dance together. Maybe this is the chance because uh, I just didn't want to make disco music." Very wise moves on your choice. Uh, how did you feel about uh, Biggie's resurgence of it? And well, you know, obviously it's a good record and it was a huge record, but uh, I'm not crazy about people taking your stuff. I think it just shows that they don't have the uh, creativity to do something themselves. Yeah, but you know. Yeah, I mean, there's they, a generation of yeah, absolutely. Rise will now last forever in people's memories. Yeah, which... no, I, I love it. I, I love the checks that come in from that too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is? Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I got I got to say that of, of your entire songbook, uh, Route 101, is... I will probably go on record and say, and I've never done this, this is probably my favorite song of all time. All right. Which... I'll give you some other ones to think about, but uh, Root Roll One is good. <laughs> I, I did that album with uh, Juan Carlos Calderon, famous uh, um, um, Spanish composer, arranger, overall good guy, rest his soul. He passed about four or five years ago. Um and Jose Quintana, the two of us produced that record. And Root 101 is definitely a good one, but if you listen to other well, a couple other ones on there. Uh, well, I love the whole Fandango record. Yeah, the Fandango. But it's just, I felt that was a return to your element. Did you, because of the groove-based stuff of, of the Beyond record, and I forgot what came uh, out in 81, the album after Beyond. But it was... Fandango was sort of like a, a, a return to form, or yeah, no, it was a, it was a good one, and and Route One One is one of my favorite songs as well. But I was all set to do a world tour with that, and then I got hepatitis, and that all could put the kibosh on it. So that that record didn't receive uh, the attention that it could have. But there are some other records that I did. I think um, I'd have to think about that. Since you've labeled that as your favorite, hmm. well, it's just for me. It's it's saying he knows about fifty-five million songs, so that's saying right. something. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the record we were doing last night that we you know didn't really do the whole thing, but rotation. If you listen yes, to that rotation. one, rotations are really good. <laughs> it's a good feel. Well, all all your stuff is good feeling. Um, actually, well, there was an album you made in eighty-five that. Uh, all I know is that uh, when you promoted it on Soul Train, you had a young Lenny Kravitz on keyboards back yeah. when he was Romeo Blue. Yeah, that's how I knew him as Romeo. He was, used to work, rehearse in our Studio C, and he I, he was introduced to me as Romeo, and I've always thought of him as Romeo, talented guy. Was he ever part of your touring group, or he just did that promotional appearance on Soul no, Train? No, he just did that. He just did that. Okay. Because I was going to say, when when the drummer introduced himself, he said, yeah, I'm da-da-da, badass. And I was like, wait, did he just curse on Soul Train? So that's why I was trying to make the connection. Oh, yeah. With, mm -hmm. If your drummer was badass. Um, with Jam and Lewis and Keep Your Eye on Me. Well, those, those guys were really original. They really had a flair for uh, picking out the right song, the right grooves. And uh, when I... Uh, flew to uh, Minneapolis to record. They said they had this great song for me. And they played the song. And I said, well, what's the title? They said, Sausage. I said, no, nah, man, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> sausage. Wow. Yeah, well, that was, that was Keep Your Eye on Me. That was the, the original title they had was Sausage. <laughs> <laughs> Working title. But they, yeah. these guys are good. You know, they're... Uh, they have a great sense of humor. We were, I was doing this um, 
uh, interview for one of the news channels, and and the phone was ringing, rang in the studio, and and Jimmy picked it up. I said, uh, oh, Sinatra, well, tell him I'm busy. I'm working with Herb Albert right now. Will you tell Sinatra I'll call him back? You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that was kind of cool. I I also love the way that you guys uh, kind of did the Janet Jackson trick on the Diamonds video. Yeah. I, I always wanted to know, I guess I would have to ask her, how easy is it to say no to your boss? I think it's, she was doing, she was someplace else in the world, but uh, right. it all worked out. It was kind of a fun thing to do. I enjoyed it because I was waiting for it because I swore that was her in the limousine, the yeah. way that was lit. Yeah, when the little kid, that and was it good. it turns out to be a, an eight-year-old kid. So in, in 80, okay. In in eighty nine, you guys decided to sell the label. At what point, like, how did you? Well, I was into selling forty nine percent. That's what I wanted to do, and then uh, keep fifty one and keep control of the company. They kept upping upping the ante, you know, uh, and uh, it reached a point where I thought hmm, maybe it's time. You know, the internet was coming. The internet was making noise. I, I, I'm, I'm not uh, saying that I, I, I saw what was going to happen with file sharing, but uh, there was something about it that said, hmm, maybe the time is right. So when they finally made this nice offer and they wanted to buy the whole company, we, uh, we agreed. And I'll tell you what the interesting part of that whole thing was. Jerry and I started the company in 1962 on a handshake. We never signed any contract together. Uh, lots, millions of dollars went through the doors in various ways, and uh, we ended up signing over to Polydor, and uh, that was the first time we ever signed a contract together. And we uh, concluded with a with a big hug. And Jerry's still one of my dear friends. That's good. Yeah. So you're trying to figure out a way for us to, <laughs> to remember to the company, Steve? Oh, no, no, no. Anyway, well, Herb, I, I thank you very much uh, for sharing your story on Questlove Supreme. Uh, there's so much. There's more. There's more. There's part two. Yeah, we got to do a part two. I have one more question. Okay. What does your record collection look like? It's not very extensive, you know, because... Uh, Are you asking for that CTI No, I'm just curious. Okay. I'm just curious. A man like this. You, you know, know, I have a few... <sighs> I have some classical music that I like a lot. I'm, I'm crazy about Ravel. You know, Daph Daphnis and Chloe is one of the things that I love to listen to when I feel a little down. The fourth movement knocks me down, knocks me out. Uh, you know, I love Miles like all other musicians, and uh, Charlie Parker was the guy. He was on another planet. He was doing things that uh, will resonate for years to come. Um, I love Paul Desmond. Jerry Mulligan was a dear friend of mine. Stan Getz and I were like brothers. Stan was a guy that I really, 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 really had a feel for because uh, he was, um, he always just said, I never played a note that I didn't mean, you know, and I, I, I love that about <laughs> musicians. And I, we were so close, you know, I, he, he said, do you want, uh, he wanted to give me lessons. I said, no, I asked him. I said, how about giving me some bebop lessons? I never played with Charlie Parker and Coltrane and all those guys you played with. And uh, he said, sure. So I'm in my studio with Stan, and 
I said, do you think I should work on these two five one chords in every key? Which is page one of Berkeley School of Music and all the other, mm-hmm. you know, Manhattan school. That's that's what they teach. You know, that that's just basic. You think I should work on those in all keys? These two five one chords. He said, "What's that?" Which was like a real hmm, man. These guys didn't think like that. They were they were playing from another point of view. They were looking at uh, music from another angle, and you know the music school tried to break it down what these great jazz musicians were doing. Uh, so it was. Uh, let's see. And, and, oh, there's another part of that stand story I wanted to tell you. Oh yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, yeah. So he gave me some lessons, and we talked about jazz and. Uh, his approach. I said, well, well, tell me the truth. What, do you, what are you thinking about when you're playing? Because I did this record with him. There's a beautiful record I did called uh, Appassionato. Mm-hmm. And one of them, the songs was a, a, a waltz for Stan. And he played this thing. It was gorgeous. And uh, I said, well, what, are you, what are you thinking about when you're playing? Something like that. He says, well, I think about... Uh, that I'm front of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, <laughs> and I'm davening. <laughs> I mean, this guy was—he was, he was fab- fabulous, man. He was—he uh, had an extraordinary life. He was, you know, went through all the drugs imaginable to man, and then the last four years of his life, he was on macrobiotics and he had cancer, and you know, uh, so he had a kind of a split personality when it was all when he was on drugs and. One of the musicians, uh, it was either Al Cohn or Zoot Sims, when they asked him, you know, what was Stan like? And he, and he, he said, he was the best bunch of guys I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved him. He was beautiful. He was a real, uh, real good friend. Wow. Well, okay. In closing, we have to say that you, you have a new album out. Yeah. Music Volume 1, I believe. And hopefully there will be a Christmas album coming too. Well, there is a Christmas, Christmas. album. It's called The Christmas Wish, and it's uh, with orchestra and choir, and it's it's darn good, if I must say so myself. Well, you're Herb Albert. Hey, right? man. The best gum chewer of all time. Nah, you so. know something? <laughs> I, I think if you don't believe in what you're doing, why should you let anyone else believe in what you're doing? Those are wise words. Well, on behalf of uh, Sugar Steve uh, and the the missing uh, alumni of mm-hmm. Questlove Supreme, this is uh, Questlove signing off uh thank you for listening thank you herb alpert pleasure Uh, again thank you for coming to the show and uh, i will see you guys on the next go around only on pandora course love supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. this classic episode was produced by the team at pandora for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.